Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. You've seen them perched alongside the highway or maybe near your home. Hawks like the red-tailed or red-shouldered, pretty common in Connecticut. But what do you know about these fierce predators in our midst? They're not cuddly creatures or animals we think of as pets, but humans have cultivated a working relationship with them. Falconry has existed for thousands of years, and the sport is practiced in Connecticut today. Coming up where we live, we'll hear more about falconers. Nature writer Cy Montgomery learned about hawks from a master falconer in New Hampshire, who told her, a hawk does not want you to touch it. It does not want to be petted, ever. A single mistake handling a raptor, even one you know well, may provoke it to bite you, stab its talons into your flesh, or both. Despite learning that, Cy Montgomery writes she is drawn to the company of hawks. It's the focus of her new book, The Hawk's Way, Encounters with Fierce Beauty. Cy Montgomery joins us now on Zoom. Cy, what a pleasure to have you on the show. Oh, the pleasure is mine, Lucy. Now, you probably know her name because she also wrote The Soul of an Octopus, a National Book Award finalist, one of my favorites, and The Good, Good Pig, her memoir of life with her pig, Christopher Hogwood. It was an international bestseller. Sai, uh, again, we're, we're so happy to have you on the show. And our listeners can join as well, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter, at Where We Live. So you're interested in a lot of different types of animals. So tell us what got you interested in birds of prey? Well, gosh, I mean, just seeing someone like that, even at a distance, you're drawn to them for their their power and their grace. But the opportunity to see them really up close and personal um, with with falconry um, was pretty irresistible. Like my husband uh, listening to the radio, which is where all the the great information comes from, as we all know, uh, heard about New Hampshire School of Falconry when it first opened and knew that I just had to try this. And I was Nancy Cowan's very first student with my friend, Celinda Chacoin, when the place opened. And from that moment on, I was hooked. Uh, for people who may not know a lot of your background, you're a vegetarian. Uh, you're someone uh, has that has given up meat. You're not someone that's into hunting per se. And so, when you talk about falconry, you know, and going to the school, what kind of questions did you wrestle with? Well, you're you're absolutely right. At first, you know, when when you think oh falconry, you think oh I get to be up close and personal with these birds, but the only interest the bird has in you is if they can trust you to be a reasonable junior hunting partner. That's the only thing you have to offer to them. And I did not, to tell you the truth, realize that I had to enter into that kind of a relationship. And it was hard for me. One of one of the things that you feed young 
smallpox um, in your care is cut up frozen dead baby chicks. And I had chickens who I had raised from tiny chicks, still shaped like an egg, who I loved and knew by name and who sat in my sweater and came when I called and I could pick them up and kiss them. And all of a sudden I'm putting like parts of someone like someone I loved into a little baggie to hand to someone else who I also loved. Mm. So I had to, I had to overcome that. But my, I was so crazy about these hawks. I was so wrapped um, in the face of their majesty and their ferocity and their wildness that somehow I was able to put that aside just for the pleasure of being in their company. Mm. Now, when we talk about hawks and we're talking about birds of prey, how many species are there? And when we think about the types that you worked with at the falconry school, can you tell us more? Well, there's a couple hundred different kinds of birds of prey around the world. They live all over the world, except in the very, very coldest um, regions. And they, they range from huge hawks that can hunt wolves, that people actually in Mongolia use them to hunt wolves, if you can imagine that, to little tiny sparrowhawks um, who, you know, are, are not that much bigger than an actual sparrow and adorable. So um, in, in our region, we have a number of hawks. You mentioned earlier that you're very likely, the most common hawk you're likely to see would be the red tail or a, a broadwing. And it's magnificent to see the broadwings all coming back just this week. They were flying through Connecticut like last week to come back to their nesting territory. So we're surrounded by these creatures. And a lot of times we don't realize that what they are, you know, they're, it's like tigers flying over your head. These ferocious, incredible predators, more than tigers, they're really flying dinosaurs. Mm, that's right. And when you, you talk about that, you know, that might surprise some people to think about hawks as living dinosaurs, but birds all around us, that's what they are. That's right. At your feeder, they're also <laughs> direct descendants, not of the dinosaurs, like nice brontosaurus or apatosaurus or diplodocus, the plant-eating dinosaurs, but all birds are descendants of the theropod dinosaurs like Tyrannosaurus rex and like Velociraptor. Mm. Uh, you are a, an animal lover. And so when you think about relationships you've had with birds in the past, you know, how are hawks different from them? Well, I've had friends who were birds, who I had a cockatiel who showered with me <laughs> and loved for me to stroke her. Um, my very first, the first male ever to make love to me was actually a parakeet when I was like seven who threw up on my finger which, you know, is how they court you. Um, but hawks are different. They don't want you to touch them. Um, the, the kind of love they elicit uh, is not a transactional love. They're not going to give you back what a, a dog or a horse or a, a parrot is going to give you back. What they're going to give you back is to be able to bask in their magnificence. Mm. And their magnificence is such that that is more than enough and that you are just elated to be their servant. I feel like I need to go back to that parakeet story, Sai. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I was little, but um, 
usually when someone throws up on you, it's not something that leaves you very happy about the situation. But uh, birds feed their young by regurgitating. A lot of animals do that. Um, even even dogs, if left to their own, will regurgitate for their for their young. And um, birds will do that for their young. And when they're courting, they'll throw up some worms. <laughs> Conrad Lorenz had had jackdaws puking up worms in his ears, and he was so <laughs> honored because he was being courted. Uh, I would rather have flowers and candy myself. Right. But right. when Jerry, my little green parakeet, was throwing up on my finger, somehow, even though I was little, I knew this was a gift, and I I was I was deeply moved that he wanted to feed me. Mm. And you mentioned that hawks, the birds of prey, you know, they don't love you back. And you've written in your book, The Hawk's Way, you know, that they're also very temperamental. So can you tell us more about that? Yeah, um, because, you know, one look at their sharp beaks and their curved obsidian talons. And you see this is a bird that could hurt you. Um, and if they feel threatened or even just annoyed, they don't hesitate to punish you for, for messing something up. So you just don't mess up. Uh, not just because you don't want to be hurt, despite the fact that they're so powerful and gifted with, you know, amazing senses that we don't have. Their powers of sight are, are incredible. Their speed, the fastest creature in the world is the peregrine falcon that can stoop and dive at 240 miles an hour despite all of this, or maybe even to facilitate all of this, they're really made of air and they are in some ways quite delicate. So um, if you make a mistake, you can hurt the hawk who's on your fist. If something happens to their eyes, if they get an injury on their feet, they can get an infection. They, they're full of air sacs. And you know if, if you're walking along and they poke into a branch, you can really hurt that, that animal. So just don't make a mistake. And it demands that your senses be completely engaged. And that too is another blessing of working with these birds, that they demand that you be on in a way that you don't have to be on with anyone else. You're hearing Cy Montgomery here on Where We Live. She's a best-selling author, a naturalist, uh, written many books. Today we're talking about The Hawk's Way, Encounters with Fierce Beauty. You can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. You've mentioned a couple of times, uh, Cy, that with hawks, uh, <laughs> humans are their servants. And so when you're learning uh, to be a falconer, uh, you really are the hawk's junior partner. So can you describe more about about the lessons you learned? Well, it's a real lesson in humility. And Nancy Cowan, the falcon, master falcon, falconer who was my instructor, was very clear on this. You can't, for example, even with a young bird, you can't use techniques that you would, for example, to, to train a dog. You can't really use rewards and punishments. Um, you certainly would never use punishment. You shouldn't on a dog either, really. Um, but for instance, when you give a hawk some food, she says, you are giving it its food. The food was the hawks all along, and you're not doing it any favor at all. <laughs> the food's just coming out of your hand. Um, but what you can offer that bird is what it wants more than anything is to, to chase and hunt prey. That's its heart's delight. That's what it's made for. 
that is when it's it's life like bursts into flame and the rest of the time it's like a candle extinguished so even if all you do is walk along and your footsteps scare up a vole or something instantly that hawk sees that and remembers it forever and now you're of use to that bird mm-hmm. and even even wild birds uh, who've never seen captivity have i've read and heard about made friends with humans who just happened often accidentally to scare up prey for them and they'll wait for their human to appear and kind of like a relationship between the honey badger and the bird the honey guide the honey badger will find the the bees and the honey guide will eat the, the larvae um, they figure out oh this person can be useful to me so that's what you have to offer to them Oh, I love hearing that. Uh, I'm thinking it back to a, a hawk that I would see every afternoon near my garden last summer. <laughs> I didn't realize that was happening. <laughs> yeah, sometimes they'll even follow a tractor as it mows a field. because, And they'll remember that's the red tractor. And in the wake of that tractor, all kinds of little creatures are running away. Snakes are slithering off and um, little birds hiding in the grass and grasshoppers. And sometimes the hawk will, and the the guy, and the, Running the tractor may not even know that he's being followed by this raptor and that he's doing a big favor to this bird of prey. At the same time, when we think about learning to handle these magnificent birds, the precautions, because they are dangerous. What was it like in your book? You talk about uh, the time a hawk has screamed in your face. Were you scared? (laughs) I I wasn't. Um, The first time I ever handled a hawk, I, I was just so, my, my mind was so blown just by being so close to the bird that there was no room for me to be nervous about it. And I knew that sometimes they'll just turn their, their, their head and scream at you like, I hate you, I hate you. And this was unusual for me because I've had all kinds of relationships with the animals, including octopuses. Mm-hmm. I've even, I was able to get a rhinoceros to roll over. It was someone's rhinoceros. It wasn't like a wild rhinoceros, but You can usually, once you've established, I'm not going to eat you, you're not going to eat me. With most animals, the next step is gentle touch. Well, that doesn't work with a hawk. Um, So I knew right away that this this was a different relationship, and it cracked my whole brain open to be ready for new surprises. And if that meant the bird was just going to scream into my face, it was like, okay, you're screaming in my face. We'll see what happens next. (laughs) And not to wear hats around hawk size. Yeah, some don't like hats. Some don't like sunglasses. And at, at Nancy's school, she often told people, you know, do not wear sunglasses because the hawk will fly out of the tree and remove the sunglasses. They hate that they hate it so much. One time I was with a hawk who I knew well, but um, I attended an event that Na- Nancy was holding and I, I was wearing a skirt. Well, the hawk had never seen me wearing a skirt. And I wear long skirts and the hawk thought my legs had disappeared and did not approve of this fashion choice and shrieked at me like I was trying to butcher her. But, you know, um, I just didn't wear a skirt around that hawk anymore. (laughs) (laughs) A quote from your book that really stood out to me is when you were attending this falconry school. I think your husband described handling a hawk like a loaded gun. Yes, and that's one reason why I did not become Nancy's actual apprentice, which she generously asked me to do. 
because I travel a lot and sometimes I'm gone for months to some jungle or desert or cloud forest. And, you know, if you're an apprentice, you have to capture a wild red tail, hawk of the year, you know, bird of the year, and um, house that bird in an aviary called Muse and care for that bird. And if I was ever gone, who was going to do it? Well, it wasn't going to be my husband. (laughs) You mentioned uh, taking a bird out of the wild. Some of our listeners might think, you know, how is that humane? Uh, But there was a statistic I think you shared in your book when we think about how many wild hawks actually die in their first year or so. Yes, it's in fact, I totally shared um, many listeners' concerns. How could I take a hawk out of the wild? But 80% of the birds of the year, you know, hawks of the year, um, will die in their their first year. And when you think of what they have to go through, you know, here they are, this this youngster, they many of them migrate. Um, Our broad wings, for example, that we have here in New England, they go all the way down to Colombia and Peru and Brazil. And it's a gauntlet they have to fly. Many people don't like hawks, will shoot them. They uh, often get poisoned. They will be attacked and killed by other hawks. And remember, when they, every single meal, they have to kill that meal with their feet and their face. So it's really no wonder. So for falconers who take a bird out of the wild, frequently they let that bird go in a year. And they've essentially given that bird a head start by caring for them, feeding them, providing them with the veterinary care for their first vulnerable year. Naturalist Cy Montgomery here on Where We Live, author of the new book, The Hawk's Way, Encounters with Fierce Beauty. We'll talk more about falconry, what she learned, and take your questions too, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. 
This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Naturalist Cy Montgomery has spent time with many animals over the years, learning and writing about them. Experiences from Borneo to Costa Rica to her home in New Hampshire. It was in her home state where she had the chance to learn from master falconer Nancy Cowan about hawks. She and Nancy would go on to be friends for more than 30 years. Cy writes about her experiences with hawks. She describes it as a deep love affair in her new book, The Hawk's Way, Encounters with Fierce Beauty. You can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Cy, uh, tell us about Jazz the Harris Hawk. Oh, Jazz was the first hawk I ever held on my hand. And I, I just, when Nancy passed her from her gloved hand to mine, I've never seen such a beautiful bird. The eyes in particular, I mean, the feet, they're, they're so strong and so beautiful and tipped in those curved, killing claws. Um, the beak is gorgeous. The feathers are gorgeous. But looking into her eyes, it was like looking directly in the sun for me. The eyes of a hawk gather so much more of life than we can. We pride ourselves as primates on our excellent eyesight, which is excellent in comparison with our other kind of weak senses. But we're like Mr. Magoo compared to a, to a hawk. Their eyes weigh twice as much as their brain. And they're able to see in detail from a distance. If we look down from an airplane onto some trees, it looks like a bunch of broccoli. They can be hundreds of feet, even thousands of feet in the air and can see for a distance of two miles. And they can see in detail that every single leaf, they can see every outline and colors that we can't even imagine. And they see quickly. We see a hummingbird's wing as a blur. They see each individual wing beat. And when you look into the face of a hawk who's who's eyes are inches from your face, you're very aware of that life force that they are taking in so much visually. They are alive in a way that we aren't. And to be able to touch that life, to be close to that life is just transforming. Mm -hmm. You write about that time she perched on your glove. Can you read a portion from your book, The Hawk's Way? Oh, glad to. On my hand, I hold a waterfall and eclipse a lightning storm. No, more than that. Jazz is wildness itself, vividly, almost blindingly alive in a way we humans may never experience. This is one reason I've always been drawn to animals. Their sharpened senses give them a fuller experience of the world. Largely oblivious to the symphony of sense, humans experience only a small part of life. We hear but a sliver of the range of the world's voices and have evolved to depend on vision most of all. But although we live through our eyes, birds do so to an even greater degree. Birds eyes gather more of life than ours do. Perhaps this is why I could feel jazz so purely, densely full of life, filling up the moment, here, now, and nothing else. The Buddhists say there really is nothing else. 
because now is timeless. Now is everything. Perhaps because of this, jazz seems more immediately alive than any human I have ever known. To be in the gripping gaze of that bird is like looking directly into the sun. The class is a transforming experience. I'm hungry for more. Mm. Again, that's naturalist Cy Montgomery here on Where We Live, reading from her book, The Hawksway, Encounters with Fierce Beauty. You write in the book that uh, you longed for this connection with birds of prey, and you can hear in that excerpt uh, what it meant to you for jazz to perch on your glove, uh, to see its eyes on you. You also write about something called Yarrick. Can you explain that? Yeah, Yarrick is a word that falconers know. No one's absolutely sure where it came from, but it describes a hawk's burning desire to to hunt and chase. And when the bird is in Yarrick, that is the only thing that will satisfy it. And if that yearning is, is not satisfied, even a bird who's you've worked with for a long time will attack. And uh, Nancy experienced that um, with a bird who she loved and had raised from a chick. And what had happened was she'd gone out with this this bird, Indy, um, and they'd gone hunting together. And Indy had experienced the, the, the joy, the fulfillment, the excitement of having their, their Yarrick uh, honored with a hunt. And then abruptly, she couldn't go hunting anymore. It may have been like a weather thing. Winter came on. Um, it was very frustrating to the bird. And then one day, Indy attacked her. And she couldn't figure out what was going on. But when she spoke to an even more experienced falconer, he said it sounded like a buildup of Yarrick. And for me, you know, this is something so foreign to anything I've ever felt. I I do not want to hunt anything. My mother, I don't have anything against hunting. Um, you know, I, I know cheetahs and uh, wild dogs and lions and all kinds of creatures have to hunt. My mother hunted. She hunted squirrels. She had to, to eat when she was growing up in Arkansas. But I have no desire to chase after something and take its life when I can just eat a nice piece of broccoli. But I could feel these hawks in Yarrick. And this is like savagery bereft of all evil. It was just pure wildness. And all of a sudden, I could feel and appreciate that kind of wildness and their desire became my own. I wanted that bird to be able to catch some prey. Mm. And I wanted to be able to be of help. Uh, your book, again, talks about uh, learning from a master falconer. And we that got us thinking about falconers here in our state. Uh, joining us now on the phone is Laurie Fortin, who's a wildlife biologist for the state of Connecticut's Department of Energy and Environmental Protection. Laurie, welcome to the show. Thank you, Lucy. So when we think about falconry today, in Connecticut. Can you describe the community of falconers in our state and, and how they become a falconer? 
Um, yeah, we started our program in 2005. Connecticut was actually one of the last states to pass a law that allowed falconry. And since then, we've had a very small but very tight-knit group of people. Around 15 people are usually licensed each year to practice falconry. Some are active and some, you know, take breaks here and there. But certainly they're all um, in touch with one another and support each other's activities. And to become a falconer is, you know, quite a commitment. So the person who is applying would need to have a hunting license. They would go through a class, even though they themselves are not physically hunting, their bird is hunting. So that is a requirement. Um, They also need to find a sponsor, like Sai was describing. You know, Nancy would have acted as a sponsor for her. Um, They need to have someone who's a master general class falconer who can show them the ropes and teach them all the things they need to know. Um, That sponsor will generally help them with their exam, which they need to pass. Um, So we administer that through the state of Connecticut. And they would need to build the appropriate housing or muse that, that Cy mentioned as well and have the appropriate equipment to manage their birds. So that would be inspected um, by our agency. And what birds and so all of those what, sorry. what birds are uh, falconers in Connecticut allowed to uh, take from the wild for this sport? So as an apprentice, the only bird they can take from the wild is a red tailed hawk and that is their only choice. There is no option to buy a bird or receive a bird. They must capture a wild young bird and train that bird. And so, again, there's a lot of training, but also uh, permits to be allowed to legally own a a bird of prey, Lori? Yeah, so the states administer the program, but it's actually a national program. So there are federal laws and regulations that they must adhere to. And um, being the permitting coordinator, I would um, make sure that all those those requirements are met prior to someone becoming authorized. And in Connecticut, it's very rigorous, uh, a little more so than some of the other states because we had more time, I guess, to to learn from other states. And here in Connecticut, you cannot own or possess a, a bird that is endangered, threatened, or of special concern here in Connecticut. So we have some some restrictions, and we also... Um, require that people moving from an apprentice class into a a higher class called the general falconry class would have to take a test again. So there's a a written exam and there's also a field exam where they have to prove they've been able to successfully train a bird and partner with that bird in a hunting experience. Mm -hmm. So we're making sure that the birds are well cared for and that the skills have been learned to adequately support that bird. That's Lori Fortin, again, a wildlife biologist for the state of Connecticut's Department of Energy and Environmental Protection. Thank you, Lori, for coming on to explain that to us. 
Thank you, Lucy. I wanted to get back uh, to Cy Montgomery. Uh, you've learned so much uh, from this experience, uh, learning from Master Falconer Nancy Cowan, and she became a good friend to you. I understand you dedicated this book to her. She passed recently. Yeah, um, just January 8th. It's horrible. She died of complications from COVID. Mm. We're so sorry to hear of your loss, uh, but I, I understand that you also helped encourage her to write her own memoir because when I say she's a master falconer, I mean, she's known uh, worldwide uh, for um, the skill and the lessons that she taught others about falconry. Yeah, and I urge people to find her wonderful memoir, for which I and my best friend, Elizabeth Marshall Thomas, were privileged to write the introduction. It's called Peregrine Spring. And it became a national bestseller. We'll be sure to look that up, uh, Sai. Why do you think people um, have such a connection to birds? Well, I do think it's their wildness. Um, Birds of prey, it's no wonder that we chose the eagle to be the emblem of the United States of America. It's majestic. It's strong. It commands respect. But a lot of people don't thoroughly understand what these creatures really are. So often we just encounter them as a speck in the air, you know, and we see tens of thousands of them uh, migrating uh, overhead in the fall, or when we see them coming back like they are now. Um, When you're right up close next to one, that's when you're nearly blinded by all that they that they are and to some people that's distasteful there's there's some bird watchers for example who don't like hawks because if one comes by your bird feeder you know that could be the end of your favorite titmouse or cardinal um pigeon uh, racers of course for them you know a hawk is is the bane of of their sport because they might love to eat your pigeon. Um, So even as we admire them in general, the folks who persecute them have had a terrible effect on birds of prey populations. And predators of all kind always seem to to get the brunt of of humans' worst activities. And uh, they they suffer from our poisons. They they suffer. They're shot. You know, some people don't just don't see their right to exist. Again, you're hearing naturalist Cy Montgomery here on Where We Live, author of The Hawksway: Encounters with Fierce Beauty. I'm glad you touched on that point, Cy. Uh, we're hearing from a listener who said he's been attacked by birds in certain circumstances, like owls, geese, and turkeys. And we should also talk about when birds are dangerous. Well, I mean, I'm sorry, poor guy. I I, I hate being attacked by animals too, um, but they're just they're probably defending their nest. Um, at least that's certainly what, what happens with, with birds of prey. And most of the time, they'll give you a warning. Most of the time, they scream at you to go away. And then they'll start swooping to try to get rid of you. Um, but if you persist and come near their, their nest, like any good parent, they, they want to protect their, their babies. And, yeah, they, they can, they can uh, do some damage. So 
what I'd say is let's let's heed their warnings and back off. And remember, long before we existed, even as a species, these creatures were out there and we're living in their land. Hmm. Now we're going to continue talking with Sai after the break. And we're also going to hear from a wildlife rehabilitator in Killingworth, Connecticut. Now, what questions do you have about birds of prey? You can join us, 888-720-9677. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about birds of prey. But this programming note, on Monday, Connecticut Governor Ned Lamont joins us for the hour. What questions do you have for him? We hope you join us on Monday. Now, my guest is on Zoom today, Cy Montgomery, author of The Hawk's Way, Encounters with Fierce Beauty. We wanted to check in with a local organization that focuses on educating the public about these magnificent birds. Joining us now is Christine Cummings, executive director and founder of A Place Called Hope. That's in Killingworth, Connecticut. She's a licensed wildlife rehabilitator, and she also cares for injured, orphaned, sick, or non-releasable birds of prey. Christine, welcome to the show. Yes. Hi. Thank you so much for having me today. And I have to say, I am so inspired to read Sai's book. <laughs> well, the work that you and your husband do is very inspiring. I understand you started in back in 2007. What drew you to Birds of Prey, Christine? Oh, well, like Sai was describing, it's that first encounter that had me. I had, of course, always had a, a fascination with wild birds of all kinds, wild animals of all kinds. But the first time I ever got to see a bird of prey up close and personal was during an intro to wildlife rehabilitation class. And the person that was teaching the class actually ran a center similar to mine. And she brought a different bird species to each one of the four classes. And I do believe it was a red-tailed hawk that I met eyes with and that magnetic pull, that bird just pulled straight into my soul. And I was more present than I had ever been before in my entire life. There was no denying that I was 100% connected with that bird. (laughs) The fascination, of course, just grew from there. And my husband also shares in this. He also took the course and he's a wildlife photographer. So for him, this was just a a bonus because um, his fascination with these birds goes way back to his childhood. You can see some of his amazing photos on uh, your Facebook page. Just look up a, a place called Hope. And you know, I, I find your feed to be really informative about not only the work that you're doing rehabilitating these birds, but uh, you know, our impact, human impact on them. Can you talk about um, how they become injured and you know, how you're able to work with them? Absolutely. So in our experience, since we began, we actually started as wildlife rehabilitators in the state in 2005 and founded a place called Hope in 2007. And of course, our specialty are for primarily birds of prey. Uh, What we are learning over all of these years is that 98% of the injuries that we see have something to do with humans or mankind. 
conflicts with us humans. And these conflicts, of course, can range anywhere from the, the number one injury, which of course would be vehicle collisions, to anything from, let's say, window strikes or garbage entanglements, which would, of course, include fishing line, um, kite string, balloon ribbon, six-pack ring holders, netting, you kind of get the idea, um, habitat destruction, where uh, we're building more and more parking lots and buildings and neighborhoods. And uh, one of my pet peeves is this time of year, a lot of people are, are anxious to get outdoors and, and clean up the yard. And rightfully so, it's finally warm and we're finally getting outside again where we're comfortable. But when you cut down dead trees, you have to always consider that those dead hollow trees may be homes to many different wild animals. So we see a lot of um, nest destruction that way. Um, there are more and more situations where birds are also becoming poisoned in our environment, whether it's from lead toxicity to secondary poisoning from rodenticides or pesticides. Um, we're seeing an increase in all of that. Mm. And then, of course, in the spring, which this time of year, we've got lots of baby birds from songbirds to eagles. And if these babies come out of their nests and people find them and they're unable to fly, a lot of people will, um, with good intention, pick them up and remove them from their natural situation, which, of course, it really depends on the stage and the age of those babies, um, whether or not they need help. You must feel so many calls. So for people who are <laughs> yeah. listening now who say, oh, I, I have seen a baby bird. I didn't know what to do. Uh, you're mm -hmm. saying leave it there? Well, the best way to deal with a situation like that is to stand back and observe, see if the parents are still actively caring for that bird, take a photograph of the bird and reach out to a federally permitted wildlife rehabilitator close to you. Um, the way you find rehabilitators in the state of Connecticut is, of course, through the Department of Environmental and Energy Protection on their, on their website you go under dealing with distressed wildlife. And there is a beautiful map of our state with each rehabilitator listed according to the town they live in and the animal species they care for. So you can cut a lot of um, time down from calling all over the world looking for help by having that map pulled up and memorized or know who's close to you before you even face a, a dist distress call. Um, but what we do is we ask people to text us photographs. These phones today are just fantastic for helping us because if we can see the bird they're talking about, then we can um, have a better educated guess as to what might be happening. So most of the time with a nest fallen baby, it's a baby that can't pick itself up. Its eyes might still be closed. It doesn't have feathers. Those are babies that need help. Um, but the ones that are actually hopping or fully feathered, eyes open, kind of mobile, those often, not always, but often don't need our assistance because baby birds really go from up in the trees down to the ground to the sky. They have to build their muscles before they can fly. And the way they do that is by climbing around on the branches outside and away from their nest. And sometimes they miscalculate or misjudge and they might fall to the ground. Uh, but usually there's a, a parent bird close by uh, coaxing them along with food, trying to get them out of harm's way. And if people are concerned about these birds, especially the babies, another point, keep your cats indoors? 
Oh, absolutely. We always tell people that, please, your cats are the only other uh, mammal species besides humans that kill for sport, actually. They don't necessarily even eat what they kill. Cats belong indoors. Despite their longing to go outside, they are uh, apex predators, of course, and they do want to go outside because they are also driven to kill. But they do so much damage to our wildlife and they do so much damage to the environment and they're at the same risks as all the wild animals are for those conflicts that we see with our our wild animals coexisting in our backyards. You're hearing Christine Cummings here on Where We Live, executive director and founder of A Place Called Hope. That's in Killingworth. She's a licensed wildlife rehabilitator. Uh, You had mentioned rodenticide, and so I'm wondering if you can talk more about the secondary poisoning cases that that you have seen. And, you know, is there any legislative action happening in Connecticut? Yeah, it's really interesting that you asked that. We actually, um, we've been posting a lot about the many cases coming into our center for the last few years. We're seeing such an increase in secondary poisoning. And it was so much so that, you know, our followers have been pretty outraged and as we are ourselves, because these birds, by the time they get to us, there's nothing we can do. Um, They're basically already actively dying. And it's a real sad thing to take care of, um, to watch and witness the process and, you know, cradle these birds in arm when they are um, seizing and, and bleeding out from the secondary poisons that they've ingested. They're only out there doing their natural job to keep a balance in our ecosystem. And unfortunately, they are eating rodents that have been intentionally poisoned because nobody wants to live with, of course, rats or mice in their their own houses or buildings or structures. Um, But what we're not taking into consideration when we're putting down poison, especially the anticoagulant rodenticide poisons, is that that mouse or that rat is going to ingest that bait and it's going to become poisonous itself. So for whatever predator, whether it's a bird of prey, a fox, a coyote, any animal, including dogs and cats, by the way, can eat that same um, poison by eating that mouse or the rat that's ingested the poison. We call that unintentional poisoning. Of course, people aren't putting the bait out to get rid of birds of prey, but it affects them just the same. It's a horrible way to die. It's an anticoagulant, meaning the blood does not clot, so it doesn't thicken, so they basically bleed out. Um, There is no no way for no antidote for us with something called second generation anticoagulant rodenticides that's the stuff that's the real big guns and the stuff that's really used by most of the pest management companies Um, it's very effective and it makes your problem seem like it disappears but the truth is it's a temporary fix christine Uh, uh, what are the alternatives quickly for our listeners yeah quickly absolutely (laughs) integrated pest management is what we recommend and that's um that includes sanitation obviously picking up the things that might be attracting rodents in the first place and exclusion work so you can um, seal off areas that rodents might be entering whatever structure there are all kinds of safe alternatives and let's go back to the original the snap traps Never use glue or sticky boards because those are those are inhumane. But snap traps are really quick. Um, there's something called zap traps now. They use some kind of electrical impulse. There's CO2 traps. Of course, there are live traps, um, but you have to check them a lot so you can make sure that you gather whatever live mice and relocate them somewhere else far away from the structure. There's all kinds of repellents. And nowadays, there's actually fer- fertility control products, which I'm really excited about. 
because the more they're used, the more effective they're becoming. And it seems like it might be the um, next phase. In Connecticut, the um, the push to ban these rodenticide poisons was unanimously um, supported by the Environmental Committee. And next year, next session, 2023, we're going for a full state ban. Well, thank you, Christine, again, for outlining that for us. Uh, before we run out of time, you know, we've been talking with Cy Montgomery about the connection that she has with these birds, you as well. For the birds you're able to rehabilitate and release, can you describe that moment? Absolutely. Our biggest reward, of course, is to escort each bird home. That's our goal. Our mission is to bring them back to the environment in which they originated. So each bird goes back to where they came from so they can resume their natural life. Um, the Sometimes the rehab process can be anywhere from, you know, let's say a couple days to many months. But the, the moment of release is, is a, a very quick segment in time, but it's the ultimate goal. So it's our biggest high. It's our biggest reward. And there's nothing quite like it. Um, you can actually feel their energy change when you open that carrier door and that bird comes out and realizes that it's no longer captive. It's it's finally free to go back to where it started. And of course, being returned to where they came from, they usually know where they are right away and beeline, hightail it out of there. But for some of them, they'll go up to a tree and land on a branch and kind of look around and shake the human off is what we call it. They kind of do a rouse where they fluff up all their feathers and put everything back in alignment and then they'll take off. And most of them are probably on their way back to their partners, their their mates to explain where they've been for so long. (laughs) Well, thank you, Christine, uh, for your work. I know you have uh, volunteers that help you and your husband do educational programs around the state. Our listeners can learn more. Just look up their Facebook page, A Place Called Hope. That's in Killingworth, Connecticut. Christine, thank you for your time today. Thank you for having me. And I want to thank Cy Montgomery. Again, she's author of The Hawk's Way, Encounters with Fierce Beauty. I think you've hooked some people on Hawk's Eye with this book. We appreciate your time today on the show. Boy, well, I sure hope so. Thanks so much. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Tess Terrible produced today's show. Our technical director is Kat Pastor. Again, Governor Lamont on Where We Live Monday. We'll take your calls with your questions for him. Have a great weekend. <laughs>